And you are with WMUA Amherst, and this is the second hour of Barbarian in the Valley. And I'm going to take a big, deep, long breath. Because it has been a long weekend. It's one of those weekends you get when you have young kids somewhere between the dirty laundry and getting stung by the hornet, flipping the Airbnb in the back, and my flipping out sun. The heat, the dog days of summer. Fortunately for myself and for my guest and for you listening, we have this super calming and cooling show. We're in the second hour of Barbarian in the Valley. Now, that first hour, I tell you, I'm here. I'm in the studio. I'm listening to it. I have no recollection of any of it. I disavow all of it. They say that I'm involved with it, and I have a full denial for it. So we are in the crystal ship, and if you look outside, now you're inside, obviously. You're air-conditioned, either in your car or in your house, but if you look out the window, don't even crack it open. Just look out that pane of glass. You will see myself and my guest, Greg White, in the crystal ship. We're in this big crystal ship. It's transparent, and we're over the Connecticut Valley. And we're, in fact, right now, we're looking down between our feet at a giant lacrosse thing going on here at the UMass campus. But we'll be moving the ship around. And, uh, Greg, I don't, you're not on air yet. I don't have your mic yet, but I don't know. But we are aiming to be the first aerially advertised casting broadcast podcast ever. So that's, that's maybe in the fall. That's something that we can look forward to. So, I'm going to, again, i got to take a deep breath. Because when the energy is up, I can still feel my energy is not yet in my hips, but it's coming down to my hips. It really has to land in my hips before I can move forward. And it's just starting to land in my hips. And I have this vision for the rest of the day where it's air conditioned and my son Rockwell is so cute and the laundry's all clean and there's just nothing left for me to do but maybe listen to some music and stay cool and read a book or listen to the show or listen to 91.1 WMUA Amherst. And we'll be back in a minute. So we are coming back, as promised. You just listened to Diodato, also Sparks Zarathustra. I am your host, the Barbarian in Question, on the second hour of Barbarian in the Valley, and I want to introduce to you guys Greg White, poli-sci professor at Smith College. And really, as I was, I actually had dinner with Greg and his wife and his son, and much to the chagrin of his wife, I was talking about how Greg was a genius, a life genius. (laughs) And she really, she she could tell that... Couldn't that, have agreed more. Well, it, you yeah, are. Yeah. You are. But I get from her perspective, she's just like, please don't feed, <laughs> don't feed the beast, please. Like, he's going to take this yeah. affirmation and just make a lot of hay out of it. Oh, so yeah. please don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to issue a couple mental reminders to myself. I'm going to try not to talk too much. <laughs> Gre- Greg said that wasn't a problem, but I disagree. Um, I, I think that what happened 
was that I had had Waylon on the weeks before, and he talked so much <laughs> that it was kind of like this, like I could actually get some oxygen in my lungs and start talking. So that's kind of what happened. But I also, Greg, I'm going to ask you, if I say right, right, I want, yeah, well, don't do it because okay. that's, re- that's affirming. All right. If I say that, you can say right. Right. You know, now I'm not saying that just so you agree with me. I'm just saying that because I'd like to break that habit, having having listened to the show. Pretty much I spend the rest of the week. I do this show on Sunday, and then for the rest of the week I re-listen to it over, <laughs> over and, and over, over again. again. And, <laughs> what do you and, do for fun? Well, and like some people, that you would think, well, that's because he's critical of it, and he's sitting there, and I actually just love the sound of my own voice is the problem there. <laughs> you have so, a great radio really voice. True. I, I uh, must say, no, I, I think it's, it's, Unfortunately, it's a yeah. little NPR. I would rather have a deeper... <laughs> It's got a. It's it's almost uh, two NPR. I don't but know NPR. You often feel like they have their heads down on the console and they're half asleep, like you know. Right. Well, definitely the classical playing. music guys. Yeah. There's yeah. That. Oh, yeah. Now, Greg, would you do us a favor? We have the article. It's on our website, barbarianinthevalley.com. Okay. So if you haven't read it yet and you want to go take it's your check homework it out, assignment, that was your homework assignment. I just <clears> want to point out that. When we're doing a live show on the second hour, we put the reading on the website at least by Wednesday. So if you want to participate, that allows you to do the reading. This is actually a pretty long article. And I want to also throw the phone number out there, and I I promise I'll say it again, but we really love company. So 413-545-3691. And let me say this before I repeat it. This is a wealth and equity show. So everyone (laughs) can talk about that, right? We're all experts on wealth and equity. In fact, my favorite poem ever is Leonard Cohen's Democracy. Mm -hmm. He has Mm -hmm. this great line in it. He calls it the homicidal bitching that goes on in every kitchen on who will serve and who will eat. We're all acutely aware of class and wealth inequity, I think. And so 413-545-3691 is the... You, you don't have to be an expert. In fact, this show, we don't like experts on this show, okay? <laughs> I'm not ever going to invite Greg on to talk about the Maghreb of North Africa. <laughs> That's not going to happen because uh, we just, this is, this is not an expert show. So 413-545-3691 at any time if you want to chime in on this Wealth and Equity show. And now I've officially talked too much, and I'm going to throw it over to Greg. And Greg, can you summarize as best as possible what the article is about? Yeah, I can try. And again, it's great. It's great to be. Uh, it's great to be here. It's great to be back. And um, I'm honored. Always welcome to be here in the studio. And um, I, I always I admire that you have that song by Leonard Cohen memorized. I mean, you got that. Well, I have the whole. It, yeah. I know all the lyrics, and I do it. I pull head. it out with my students. Yeah, because it's yeah. such a tremendous it's, poem. It's quite good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this article. I, I there's that great scene in the Wayne's World where they meet Alice Cooper. And they fall to their knees and they say that, you know, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. I sort of feel that way reading this kind of article oh. uh, by Matthew Stewart. It's in the uh, Atlantic um, from June of 2018. I'm not, and I don't mean to say it's perfect. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of it that we can criticize and, and, and tear up. Um, it's a little bit, it's definitely on the long side. And I think you could have used some editing and, cut, you know, cutting it down. Um, but it's the 9.9% is the new American aristocracy is the title of the, of the article. And uh, I just really admired it. I mean, Matthew Stewart is a philosopher. He's a, uh, I don't know if he has a university position. I don't think he does, but he's a, he writes books of philosophy. He's trained as a philosopher. Um, but this is all, you know, piece of long-form fiction that is, uh, I'm sorry, non-fiction, piece of long-form non-fiction that is just really well-written and well-crafted, and I really, I really liked it. Um, so, yeah, his, his basic argument is, is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's, there's tremendous inequality. 
profound, profound, profound inequality in the United States. You know, far more than people realize that people sort of get. It's, you know, so much of it's hidden and, 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 and um, yeah, hidden from view. We just don't, we don't understand or appreciate the depth of the inequality. Uh, I think that's the first argument. The second one, and he, you know, he lays that out at considerable length. Second piece is that it's worsening. It's gotten worse over time. It's, you know, it's long, you know, every society since, you know, since the dawn of time has had, you know, profound inequalities in it. In the U.S. case, it's, um, it's been this way for a long time, but it's worsening. It's getting worse, is his argument, in recent decades, the latter part of the 20th century and the first part of this century. Um, I think the third thing he's arguing is that it's, it's calcified. So while it's worsening, the potential for mobility is basically non-existent. And at one point in the article, he says the United States is more like Chile and Argentina in its lack of um, class mobility and not like Japan and Germany, that there's countries in the advanced industrialized world that, um, that have far greater class mobility. So if you're born into a particular class in the United States, you know, you are effectively there. You know, you cannot mobilize despite the, the myth or the idea that people can, can mobilize. So it's profound inequality, it's worsening, it's rigid. Um, and I think the, the last piece of the point, the last piece of the article that I would just sort of say here at the outset is that he's writing about this 9.9%. So there's the point one of 1% that is super rich, like off the charts, like phenomenally rich that, that, that um, you know, in, in U.S. society. But what he's talking about is the next 9.9%. In other words, the top decile, the top 10%, but especially that 99 that's not the super rich 0.1%. And his argument is that this is a group of people that, um, this is a strata of society that is um, powerful, very, very affluent in its own right, and works to sustain the class structure. It legitimates it. It's the legitimating force. It's the uh, it defends it, and it sustains this kind of class structure. And so, he's he's writing very much about class, class politics, economic politics. We don't do that so well in the United States, even though it's so much part of our day to day experience. As you say, yeah. you know, like people argue about wealth and income and economics all the time, but we don't think of ourselves as a class society, as you might say in the UK, you know, or mm-hmm. other countries where it's much more evident. We that have it's a class we society. have other things <clears throat> that are, are like race and other things yeah. that are really <coughs> worth looking at that <clears throat> also complicate class conversations in the yeah but i think from there he then goes and you know we can you know you and i cody can start to talk about maybe um unpacking this and critiquing it and sort of you know seeing how far we want to go with it um, but i think his take is that the class politics the class structure precedes everything precedes everything like, out of that flows all the other stuff, whether yeah. it be racial politics, religious politics, anti-immigration politics, health, health care, like the ability of people to have a healthy lifestyle, um, marriage and divorce rates. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, education, home ownership, unions, net declining worth. unions, net worth, you know, net, that and networking. That was perhaps the most alarming some of the most alarming figures. Yeah, so he's just, it's, it's this, we don't look at, uh, sufficiently at class. Yes. And we don't then look at the ways in which class affects the rest of society. So and, this and, is and interesting because through. I think you and I may have this in common. Um, you know, I don't, this is obviously in the public domain, so I don't really want to call you a Marxist or myself a Marxist <laughs> right now because that, that will stay with you. That'll be 
some headline five years from now, Marxist <laughs> professor. But yeah, I mean, I'm not the, a Marxist. Okay, yeah. okay, but good. I, I'm yeah, glad. I read Marx as a you political scientist. You said you were before the show, but well, no, but I was inf- definitely influenced by Marx. As a well, political scientist, yes. you're obligated to read Marx sure. and Marxian. Well, theory. there's historical Marx yeah. and there's revolutionary exactly. Marx, right? And so, historical Marx is something I can really appreciate. Right. And viewing the world through class structure is something I can really get behind. And even today, there are functioning Marxists who critique the way society is set up that I just think is so perceptive and really interesting. Now, obviously, neither of us want a totalitarian regime in response. No. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, in Marxism, and it's interesting to look at perhaps the totalitarian communist experiments of the 20th century have forced America off the class conversation quite conveniently for those in charge, right? You can't really have a class conversation because it's tainted with all of that red paint uh, from the mid-20th century until the late 20th century that was such a really was an awful failure and really was a betrayal of their own people. So in a way, I feel like there was probably more discussion about class before Stalin and Mao than there is now. Hmm. Right? Is yeah. it possible? And it's also interesting to think about, I mean, what he's saying about the 9.9%, I feel like is a Marxist thought anyway. I think Noam Chomsky talks about this, about how the 9%, if the 9% is complicit with the 1%, then the system stays the same. And that makes sense, right? Because the French Revolution, a lot of it's led by the 9%ers, right? Or the 9.9%ers. Mm-hmm. You know, Robespierre is uh, probably in the 9.9% of France at that point, <laughs> right? The bourgeois class. Most revolutions are started by the bourgeois class. Well, who is the bourgeois class? It's this 9.9%, right? Am I wrong? Oh, I just said right. Okay. Right? But yes. Right? What do you think? Am I supposed to wave a flag when you say right? You can give me the finger. <laughs> that might be more effective. <laughs> I'll point at you. <laughs> okay. I don't even notice it. But um, anyway, yeah, no, I think it's, that's definitely the challenge. I mean, there is a, there's, there's often a class that is m- maybe not the oligarchic, you know, the affluent, super affluent landed aristocracy, right, um, that is, surrounds it and supports it and yes. abets it, you know, and provides um, legitimation for it. And I think that's what, you know, somebody like Stort is getting at, Matthew Stort, in writing this article, is the, the ways in which the 9.9% legitimates and reaffirms, benefits from, definitely benefits from, you know. And, and so any effort to try to reform it or improve the lot of 90% of the population that is really struggling is, is resisted. By yeah. this, by this nine point nine, by this group outside the super rich, right? And I think that another big piece of the article, and might even be like the the, the meta theme of the article, is that this aristocracy is unaware that they are an aristocracy, or has conveniently found new language to push away that aristocratic idea. Yes. And let's just be really clear that what aristocratic means in this case is that my wealth is transferred down to my kids that just by being born in the family they are protected they have a protection of wealth that's going to follow them and their kids will right because that's what aristocracy basically is yeah. right yeah um and so right. as you yes, would say right as i would say right, right. so the problem, it seems, that he's identifying is that this group doesn't even actually know they're in an aristocracy. They have a new language around it. And this is a big problem because if you were to say to a lot of these people, you're in the American aristocracy, of course, that's really antithetical to what we believe about ourselves in America. Right. 
we don't like to think of ourselves as an aristocratic nation. That's pretty much the whole point of the American Revolution, you know, at least a lot of the propaganda of the American Revolution and the thrust of the American Revolution. Social mobility is a key part of American life. And to think that I didn't earn, I do think in the United States, everyone wants to feel like they earned what they, worked they had. Hard for, I worked hard for Absolutely. my, for my, for you my success. You don't see that in Europe. Right. You know, wealthy Europeans, they don't have that quandary. Right. They, 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 they're fine with that aristocratic idea. It's been around a long time. They might have better genes or something like that. Yeah. But they don't have that really desire to say, I earned that. Well, I mean, I think uh, when, I, when I read something like this, I always think about the challenge of, I mean, this goes back to, I mean, here's where I'm not a Marxist, right? <laughs> um, you know, you read Plato and the Republic, you know, and it's just long, uh, sometimes way long, um, and now thinking about justice. What is the nature of justice? And, you know, and it often boils down to fairness. It's not fair. It's not, it's not right. It's not fair. It's not just that something's happening within within a society, within a situation. But the challenge, too, is that if you're in a situation and you're not aware of the injustice, right, is it still injustice, right? So you might say to somebody, man, you're being screwed at work. You're being affected. You know, you're, you're, you're being treated unfairly. And that person, if that person sits there and says, it's okay, I'm all right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't mind or I, I didn't really notice it. I, I'm not. And it's like, no, 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 you don't really, don't you see what's well, going that on? that is you're really being, interesting. You know, so like it's that kind of external class con- consciousness. Exactly. Right? So I it's mean, that awareness. So that brings us back to yeah. Marx too. But it's that sort of idea like how if, if a group is not aware of its quote unquote Suffering. objective objective conditions yeah. right and it's only for the external an- anal- an- analyst or you know the philosopher <laughs> from Plato's perspective to look at a situation and say look this is not right this is yeah. not fair it's your not life just is terrible. and you're you're looking at it from an external optic from an external perspective that help and people listening on the radio can't see my hands you know going mm-hmm. all over the place and pointing at things um, but but it's just you know you're looking at a situation and you can say ah that's not fair that's not just. But you're absolutely right. He's pointing at, Matthew Stewart's pointing at the fact that the 9.9% has either convinced itself or it's been acculturated or it's been um, anesthetized, you know, or, you know, sort of socialized or entertainmentized, you know, with, you know, with, with, with accepting and embracing the class structure. Yeah, and it's really not going to be in a position to say, Whoa! Wait a minute. This is not fair. You huh. know, it's not in my long-term interests. It's not in the long-term interests of my kids. It's not in the long-term interests of education systems or healthcare systems or environmental or impacts. Mer- just a meritocracy or meritocracies. It's I not mean, fair. It's not. It's not just. And, and it's, in not fair, it's not fair. And probably not safe. And probably not healthy. And probably because when you're living in that half truth people are also half aware somewhere that there's a lie there well and that's where toward the end of the article he gets into the politics of resentment right because this is what drives revolutions and people in the aristocracy or the 9.9 percent is the new american aristocracy from sweet's i keep saying sweet from stewart's perspective um there's a matthew sweet who was a musician musician from the 90s so matthew stewart from matthew stewart's perspective the this 9.9 percent is kidding itself about the long-term stability of the system. There is instability. And by the this. way... It will not sustain itself from it, in his view. Historically, the revolutionaries, the future revolutionaries, 
will come from the 9.9%. <laughs> the leaders will, perhaps. Yes, yeah. the leaders will. Yeah. If, if such a thing were to play out, right. and it can play out not necessarily in a bloody revolution. Well, they, might be, can, they might be in the 88th percentile, the 85th percentile, the 80th. They <laughs> might, being but they being can facetious. be in the 9.9 yeah. yeah. If you look a lot of the right. 60s radicals, they were would be in... Uh, Educated, well off, uh, you know, yeah, 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 and wealthy. Right. Remember that townhouse that blew up in the West Village in the late sixties? They were making bombs in the basement. I, I do know not. That. Yeah, I'm that's not that old. Uh, I, I don't remember. Well, it's just a, because I used to be a tour guide in New York. I, I think it's on McDougal Street. Uh huh. And they blew the whole thing up. Well, those yeah. those were rich kids. There was plenty of rich kids in those right. movements. And again, you know, historically, revolutions are are rich kids right. usually doing right. it. And they have their own desires and leverage for power, etc., as well as being... To burn it down. Uh, yeah. And so, it's interesting to look at this. I liked what you were talking about, class consciousness, right? Because in Marxist revolutionaries, it is really incumbent upon the revolutionaries to first awaken the poor that they're in a class. Like, right. they're not even aware they're in a class. Right. They need to be... Uh, they need to understand that this is a class construct, and they give them all this kind of language. And, embra- and, and, and the working class, the proletariat, their embrace of the conditions is false consciousness. It's it's just sort of you know, and 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 right, with that false like consciousness, they're masses, working. Religion, and, they're working to sustain it. I mean, yeah. we were talking before we went on air about British Empire, the British Empire. I mean, there was that long uh, that argument about how the British working class defended the empire. You know more vociferously perhaps than the aristocracy within Britain because they were they were bought off they were sort of they were sort of um, this is Lenin's argument in, in imperialism the highest stage of capitalism one of Lenin's later tracts was this argument that working classes back home are bought off by, and, and they don't fight for the revolution they don't work for the revolution because they understand that they're in a better position right. than their third world counterparts than the, than the subjects well, in, the, in the colonies. Well, that does make sense. They, they weren't called third world If you're the part time, of an but, empire, yeah. you're part of a rising boat, someone's going to be at the bottom of that boat with the oars. But the trade-off is, and, and that's the, uh, so here's a, a criticism of the article. It's a lot of good okay. ideas that yeah. you're, you're putting on the table, and I'm, I'm going to have to like miss a few because, or it'll come back to me. But one way to look at this article is like, well, okay, yes, there's more wealth inequity since the 1920s, I think is the date that he puts right. back. And, then, and especially so since the 80s. Right. Right. And probably particularly ramped up since the end of the Cold War, mm-hmm. would be my understanding. Right. Right. But yes, 80s. You know, when the American empire starts becoming the switchboard of global commerce instead of <laughs> just, a, just a manufacturing center. You know, a big half of the world opens up, and this is Hobbsbaum's argument about England, is that at one point the British Empire leaves the actual engine room, you know, or the production room, and starts just becoming the switchboard for global commerce. So you're just like a stock trader or something, you're not actually involved in the manufacturer anymore. Right. And I do think that's true, and I think that's why big cities have accumulated so much wealth, because mm. that's where those switchboard jobs are. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there are all kinds of switchboard jobs that you can have in the empire. It's not just stock trading, it's all kinds of stuff, from fashion and media, and all that stuff is part of the global network. Okay, now let me reset here for a second. If there's more wealth inequality right now. It is also true that the standard of living is way better for America. I think for Americans, this is purely anecdotal. Just is looking around. In the 1970s, wealth inequality was much less. Let's say we, we know that from the right. data in the right. article. Right. But 
I think that if you were poor in the 70s, you actually had a lot less than you do now. Like, people didn't have cars. People didn't have air conditioning. Mm. They didn't have TVs. Mm -hmm. They didn't mm -hmm. travel. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily true anymore. It's interesting. I was looking at some photos mm -hmm. of New York City in the 70s in Brooklyn. And there were just different neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And there was tons of parking spaces. Again, this is a little anecdotal. Right. Of course, I did live through it. And the standard of luxury has gone up across the board in the United States. So, am I correct in saying I that? I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't. You may be. I, I, that's a. That's a. That would be an interesting thing to. So when to when dig Lennon says when Lennon says you've been bought off, right? The answer is like yeah, yeah, I have been bought off. Like I've actually got enough for what I want. I'm able to have my. Mm -hmm. RV and my Harley Davidson mm -hmm. and or whatever it is like yeah I don't want to be part of your revolution and of course the ruling class either wants to completely subjugate the lower classes or buy them off the American system is about well I'll give you this much then you can have this much of the spoils but it's you know the alternative of course what Lenin creates is no one's bought off <laughs> No one gets the car, right? Except maybe the person in charge. So that's not a very good system. Yeah, I don't. It, it's I don't know. It's hard to know. It's a good question. It's a it's a really good question. I'm just I'm I guess I'm still thinking that I I don't know. I don't know, Cody. I don't know whether when you look at you know we're trying to compare across time. We're trying to compare across space. You know, and whether you're looking at 1970s, 1960s United States versus 2010, you know, 2019 United States. I, it's hard to know. I mean, it's hard, you know, nobody has the kind of, uh, this is the stuff that keeps people occupied. You don't think there's occupied. more cars on the road per capita? Yeah, but there's I mean, more people. It, there's more people, but yeah. you're saying per capita. Um, probably, I don't know. I'm sure we can find that kind of data, but we're also looking at, you know, serious... Um, yeah, uh, you know inequality and and well, okay, and, and see, unfairness um, and and uh, sort of you know no. healthcare and environment and quality of water and quality of air. It's oh, not. You think that that's worse than it was in the seventies? Well, I, I would really yeah. doubt that. I'll tell you, I would really doubt that. But this is. I am, about the EPA and the water push, clean oh, yeah. air act and clean oh, water act and all those kinds of things. fields yeah. and all of the cancer causing agents of. I would really push on that. So and you're I'm saying, pushing so you're for saying a when, when people when people are. Um, in the lower deciles, right? You know, or from, from, from Stuart's perspective, you know, the bottom eight deciles, the bottom nine deciles, I should say. Um, are, they, are they wrong to be angry and resentful at this inequality that's grown? Are they wrong to be angry and resentful Not at the lack of mobility? I mean, they're, they're people, are, people are you know, genuinely feeling the lack of mobility. They work so, hard that's right. and they don't advance. So... And they're in, they're in crappy service sector, sometimes service sector jobs, or manu you know, declining manufacturing jobs, or disappearing manufacturing jobs. They're working several jobs. You've wandered right into my trap. Well, so you've wandered you're going right to talk trap. about automation, aren't you? Uh, not so much okay. as I think that there is an inequality in America that's quite pronounced, but it's a, it's not necessarily money that's the leading edge of it. It may be a mesh uh -huh. with that. But it's not that there's not enough food to put on the table necessarily, although that can exist. It's not necessarily that there's not enough media to be consumed, although that can exist, although very rarely now. That it is those things that you're talking about that concern me more than who's in what percentile. 
again, this could be overlapped and enmeshed. Mm -hmm. But let people feel that they can't grow. I really understand. And a lot of anger and rage can be can't felt. Can't grow up. what? Can't grow wealth? Can't, can't grow, grow opportunities? Uh, just, can't, uh, you know, personal growth. Personal growth. Okay. Personal growth. Uh -huh. That I really understand. Um, that people feel like they can't be engaged in meaningful work. That I really understand. Um, I also think that, you know, that kind of malaise can happen at the upper end of wealth as mm -hmm. much as it can mm -hmm. in, in poverty. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to take a break in a minute because we we're going to do some promos. But maybe when we get back, and this is perhaps my meta-criticism of the article, my meta-criticism of Lay the out. article and all these discussions about wealth inequality, although I do understand how they're connected, is that I don't think wealth is the secret to happiness. I don't buy that it is, and I've seen firsthand how wealth can actually go the other way. Does that resonate at all with you? No, absolutely. I mean, and I, I, and um, I wasn't nodding, but I should nod as you're speaking. <laughs> or I should say right. Well, if you nod, I, I don't right. have to say right. Yeah, no, but no. I, My I, insecurities I, yeah, are... Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it would be wrong to say that, you know... Um, that 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 fulfillment, that happiness, that you know, all these all these kinds of um, uh, important uh, feelings and sentiments, you know, can only be you know achieved through wealth or the uh, achievement of wealth. When in fact we know we, we know we know that they actually can backfire in the worst kind of way. But Affluenza. there is a lot to be said for having, you know. Good health care, having stable families, having education. Have, have, having education, yes. you know, um, not commuting great distances, you know, all these things that correlate, you know, he describes, you know, Brookline, Massachusetts, where he lives, and being able to walk, you know, in a you know, tree-lined street to get, you know, uh, to, to get a service. I think he's getting his hair cut. As as opposed, supercuts, which as I supercuts, As opposed to the person who's cutting his hair who has to drive yes. an hour, you know, and commute. And doesn't enjoy the the so, affluence that apparently that he enjoys. So that is where I think the wealth overlaps with the experience with well -being. in a very real way. Right. My concern is is that in America we only understand things through financial numbers. Like we only understand happiness or unhappiness through those through that lens. Like in the movie, the movie always ends no matter what with the person having enough money never to have to worry about money again. I don't. I say always, uh -huh. but uh, most Hollywood movies, there's at least from my childhood. I think there maybe it's less so. Somehow the pot of gold comes into the picture, and it's a cure all. And I think that that is something we have to be really careful with. Mm -hmm. I get how well, they overlap. I agree with that. But and so when we come back, maybe we can expand on that okay, a little cool. bit and yeah. also return to the article. <laughs> 